0: This is an Enlightenment Day celebration talk by Joel, titled Direct Pointing, recorded August 14th, 2005, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene,
1: Oregon. So this is our Enlightenment Day celebration, and uh, this is August 14th, Sunday, and the reason we celebrate it on this day is that it's close to August 13th which was the date of my awakening back in uh, 1983. But really, that's an arbitrary decision because we're not celebrating my awakening. One of the definitions of awakening, enlightenment, realization is the realization that there is no one to awaken. So you can't really talk about my awakening and... That's the bad news for all those who are struggling to awaken. The good news is there's no one in bondage either. There's no one deluded. So that's the good news. So that's the the value of awakening to the fact that no one's awakened, but no one's also in bondage. But really what we're celebrating here is the potentiality every human being has for this realization. And this is the testimony of mystics since the beginning of time. Every human being, it doesn't matter how smart you are, what your IQ is, all those things are irrelevant to awakening. In fact, I might even go so far as to say in a certain sense, for a lot of people, the smarter you are, the more clever you are, the more of an obstacle you have. This is why in many traditions uh, they talk about it's the fool that realizes this wisdom, not the so-called wise people. And Rumi has a wonderful line about sell your cleverness and buy bewilderment. Uh, So your intellect doesn't really enter into this, except insofar as it's important to understand the teachings and to be able to follow instructions and things like that. But this is not a matter of arriving at some very sophisticated theory. It's something that goes beyond theory, this realization. It's a direct perception of the nature of reality. So what we're really celebrating here is the fact that anybody could awaken at any moment. And I'm also proof of that because I was stubborn and hard-headed and I started out as a materialist and an atheist and I was really very lost. So if I could awaken, then certainly anybody in this room could awaken. Now, a lot of the teachings, the mystical teachings, are remedial in nature. And that is they do two things. First of all, they're really instructions, all teachings, even the great philosophical teachings. But they point us to practices or observations that allow us to come to understand the nature of the delusion that we live in. And that is extremely important. If we're going to wake up, the first thing we have to know is the mechanism of samsara, as they say in the East, samsara being the, the reality we seem to inhabit. And then through that process, through coming to know how delusion is created, we start to become free of this self-centered conditioning that really is the cause of our delusion. And this is a rather paradoxical. I like to compare it to a hurricane. We feel that we're some eye in here and we think that that's uh, some sort of solid entity and that we do things and there's all this activity going on. We think things, we feel things and so forth. And actually, it's the other way around. Like a hurricane, it's the activity of the swirling clouds and the rain and the winds and all that that forms a center and so if you look at it on a you know, TV map, they'll show you the hurricane forming down in the Gulf of Mexico or something. You can see a very clear eye, which is also a nice pun. And there's really nothing there. It's an illusion created by this swirling mass of activity. So this sense of self that we have actually isn't there. And it's created by this swirling self-centered conditioning. So it's the conditioning that creates the self not the other way around. So the more we can see this, the more we can actually become free long before full awakening. We can start to become free of a lot of the causes of our suffering. And the freer we become of our suffering, just naturally, the more joy and love and compassion we experience in our lives because that is part of our true nature. So that's the task of most teachings, a remedial task. But there are some teachings which, as the Zen masters say, function to point directly at the truth, point directly at the truth. They're often obscure, in the, particularly in the Zen tradition, they're often paradoxical, but all traditions have teachings that do directly point to the truth. That doesn't mean we're going to be able to see it the first time we hear the instruction, and it is an instruction. It's an instruction to look. But I thought today it would be appropriate, since it is the day we celebrate Enlightenment, to share with you some of my favorite direct-pointing teachings. So I suggest we use this format. We start with one quote to sort of warm us up and to explain how the rest of the format is going to work. And then that we would go into a meditative mode and open ourselves to just receive these pointings. Most of them are short little instructions to look, just to look at something. And that's all. Don't think about it. Don't try to figure it out. Either your attention will respond and you'll look and you'll see or it won't. And that's okay. Many, many great mystics have woken up hearing some phrase or some line or something that they heard a thousand times before. And it's just, you have to be right. That's all there is to it. And, you know, everybody gets ripe in their own time, as Rumi says. That can't be rushed. So no point comparing yourself to other people. No point saying, oh, huening. he woke up, just he heard one phrase from the Diamond Sutra. Emptiness is form. Form is emptiness. Emptiness is not other than form. Form is not other than emptiness. Bingo. <laughs> And he uh, he hadn't been practicing Buddhism or anything. He just happened to be in the marketplace here a monk chant this. So it's possible. That's very, very rare, extremely rare like that. So don't compare yourself to him. So let's start with a quote from the great Tibetan master, Long Chempa. And here's what he says. And I'm going to go through this slowly and explain a little bit. As I said, this is setting the stage here and this will also hopefully satisfy your thinking mind for a while and and then your thinking mind will think it understands then it can shut up and then listen to the rest of the teachings. Okay, so here we go. Although not really existing, things still appear. So, what he's saying is in some way this clock doesn't really exist But it still appears, right? Does anybody doubt that this is appearing in consciousness now? You're in big trouble if you do. (laughs) I can't help you. No, it's right here. No question about it. Okay. What it is, we don't know. But something's appearing. From their own side, however, such things are void by nature. Now we get tricky. So what does that mean? Uh, This term void is almost certainly a translation of uh, the Tibetan translation of shinyata, which is a Sanskrit term, which often is translated as emptiness, void and emptiness, same thing, shinyata. So he's saying that although this appears from its own side, it is empty. We'll come back to the in if we can get some idea of what this might mean. These void appearances do not actually exist. They are like magical creations. Or visual apparitions and a very common way of describing this is to use the analogy or metaphor of a dream apparition something that appears in a dream so if we were dreaming now or each of you was dreaming and you were dreaming that you were seeing this clock you would see the clock and chances are in your dream unless you're lucid, you would think that the clock actually had some objective existence But if you became lucid, or after you woke up from this dream, you would realize there was nothing behind that appearance of the clock, the way we think there's a clock here, whether it's appearing in consciousness or not. You would realize that it is empty, void of any inherent existence on its own side. Is everybody kind of following that? Okay, so this is really what emptiness means. It's a technical term in the Buddhist tradition when they talk about everything is empty. But he goes on. Furthermore, in the exact same manner, there is no inner consciousness to grasp anything. Now, we have to pause for a moment here because this is an unfortunate accident of translations. All other traditions will translate uh, the, the Sanskrit terms or the Hindu terms for ultimate reality as consciousness. And for some reason, the Tibetan uh, and the Buddhist scholars have picked consciousness to mean subject-object consciousness. In other words, consciousness under delusion. So inner consciousness here, what he's talking about, is a sense of a self, a perceiver, someone watching. He's not using conscious the way we usually use it at the center. When they want to talk about the ultimate nature of reality, they translate the Tibetan word for it, or the Sanskrit word for it in the Buddhist text, as awareness, or pristine awareness, or primordial awareness, or something like that. So don't be confused when you run across this contradiction. It's a purely semantic uh, contradiction. So when he says, furthermore, in the exact same manner, there is no inner consciousness to grasp anything, what he's saying is there's no inner perceiver, self, entity in there that is seeing this. Grasping the sense of not necessarily reaching out with a physical grasp, but grasping it intellectually and, and perceptually. So there's nothing behind this clock and there's nothing behind your eyes either. Okay? You can look at it that way. Or I should say, no one behind your eyes. Obviously, there's something behind your eyes. Uh, if you cut open your skull, you'll see something behind. Well, you won't see it behind your eyes. You'll see it behind somebody else's <laughs> eyes. It's often, in modern terms, called the philosophical problem of the ghost in the machine. And this is a problem that materialists run into. Here's this wonderful machine we have, this biological robot, but who's in here controlling it, looking out? How come there's awareness? Because we can imagine creating a robot, very sophisticated robot, to do everything that we can do. But would it be aware? Would it be conscious? What is awareness? What is consciousness? Great mystery for materialism. In any case, he says, So there's no inner consciousness to grasp anything. All is pure, like empty space. As both consciousness and its objects do not really exist... Samsara has never been experienced as being existent. Samsara is this world of delusion. We do experience samsara, delusion, but we don't experience as actually existing. We can't because it doesn't actually exist. By realizing that it is a deceptive appearance and by nature not really existent, you become liberated from it. So this is the whole trick in mystical traditions of what realization and enlightenment is all about. It's simply realizing the truth about your everyday ordinary experience. It's not really about going to some higher state of consciousness, some deep state of samadhi. Those can be interesting and useful states in order to see things on a path. But it's not about going anywhere, realization or enlightenment. It's not about escaping anything. Even though sometimes, particularly in the Buddhist tradition and the Hindu tradition, they'll talk about escaping samsara and all that. But he's telling what that really means. How that happens is it's like waking up from a dream. Or in a dream, better. And say, oh, gee, I thought this dream was real, but I see it's a dream. Now, I have to say one more thing about these Buddhist terms here. Uh, the Buddhist don't like to use positive terms for the ultimate reality, like God or Brahman or anything like that. And the reason they don't like to do that is because they know that our minds seize upon ideas like that and turn them into things. And then once that happens, turn them into uh, big daddies or big mommies in the sky. So the Buddhists are very, try to be very careful about talking always in purely negative terms. What ain't true, rather than try to say what is true. And in fact, Nargajuna, who I mentioned earlier, the great Buddhist philosopher, his whole philosophy is like modern deconstructionism. It's about showing that any position you could take is false, but without asserting some positive position. That is a practice, by the way. It's not just philosophy, because if you have that bent of mind and you really get into it, it's an instruction to keep looking, keep looking, keep looking until finally you've gone through everything you think you believe and then there's nothing left. You throw it all out. Then there's a possibility of seeing. So we don't necessarily have to go that way. There are other kinds of practices, but that's just what his particular philosophy, that's the way it works. But the Buddhists have this problem. Uh, and it's a problem because, in our dualistic way of thinking about things, it sounds very nihilistic. So everything is empty. The true nature of everything is empty. It's emptiness. It's void. It don't sound like you really want to discover this, maybe. You know, the um, early Buddhist translators used to translate the Buddhist terms very literally. And, of course, in Buddhism, the goal is Nirvana. The literal meaning of nirvana in Sanskrit means to be extinguished, like blowing out a candle. And so when Buddhists greeted each other, they'd say things like, I hope you attain nirvana soon. And the early English translators would translate as, I hope you become extinguished soon. It wasn't a very appealing religion to Westerners. And then Buddhists themselves have recognized this and have come up with, particularly in the Mahayana tradition, uh, other more positive terms like Buddha nature or universal mind or Buddha mind or things like that that are more equivalent to the terms in the uh, other traditions, the positive terms for ultimate reality. But this is important to understand. The positive terms for ultimate reality in all the other traditions Among the mystics now, not among just any practitioner, but among the mystics, always refer to something that isn't a thing. God is not a thing among other things. In fact, if God were a thing among other things, God would be limited. Limited by the boundary that separates God from everything else. So, Ibn Arabi, who I mentioned earlier, said the one thing we do not attribute to Allah is thingness, <laughs> which is another way of saying nothing, no thing. One of my favorite expressions of this is by a Christian mystic, John Scotus Eriugena, And he said, uh, this is repeating a early Christian and Jewish formula for God. We can't know what God is. We can only know that God is. Which is fine. I was fine with all the Orthodox people. But then he went farther and he said, we can't know what God is because not even God can know what God is. Well, that got everybody very excited, you know. And he explained what this meant was. He said, God can't know what God is because God is not a what. And if we want to translate this into terms that we can understand, it would be something equivalent of saying, you can't know what breed of dog you are. You can't. I hope you don't. (laughs) Because you're not any breed of dog. So God is not a what? God is not a what? So there's that whole negative, via negativa, in fact it's called in the Western Christian traditions, of how to describe God using negatives, what God ain't, not what God is, in the mystical traditions. But then, uh, of course, the mystics of the non-Buddhist traditions also have positive terms. And the one that I think is most useful for us are terms that come closest to a very modern term that we have today, and that is consciousness, even though they're not used, for instance, in the Christian or the Jewish or the Islamic traditions. There's no specific word consciousness. The closest in those older traditions is spirit. But consciousness is just a modern replacement for spirit. In fact, it came into popular use as the word spirit was going out of use, because there had to be some way to explain this mystery of awareness. Come and take a seat. I'm blank, so fill me in. Just sit down. Stay blank. (laughs) Stay blank, please. You're much better off. Okay. So this term spirit, pure spirit, is close to what we mean today when we talk about consciousness. In the Islamic tradition, the Sufis talk about God, and they take this from Quranic teachings, God is the hearing and the seeing of the servant. The hearing and the seeing and all the other faculties of awareness. So God is that awareness. So this is why Rabia, she was a great Sufi, can say, even the sight of my eyes is service at thy feet. The sense is that God is looking out, not I'm looking out. So this awareness is God. It's not like God is aware. God is this awareness of the servant. And then, of course, in Hinduism, Brahman is described as consciousness. Consciousness, being, and bliss are the three traditional descriptions of Brahman. Or as the Upanishads say, the great Hindu classics, Brahman is the consciousness of conscious beings. So if we want a positive term that is the positive side of emptiness, we would say... Consciousness, or we would say God, but we understand God here as being awareness or consciousness or spirit, not being some big daddy in the sky. It's very important before we go on from here. So to go back to Longchenpa, he's suggesting a twofold aspect to this realization. The realization of the emptiness of the objects of perception and the realization of the emptiness of the perceiver or if we wanted to put it in more positive terms, the realization that the objects of perception are God and the perceiver is God. And there ain't nothing else except God. No you and no objects. Truly existing. So, with that background here, I'm going to suggest that we go into a meditative mode. And I'm going to read you some of these pithy little sayings from various mystics of various traditions. And, as I said before, don't try to think about them. Take them as pointers. Literally as pointers. Just like I was standing up here with a you know pointer pointing at a chart. Except these are non-material pointers, we might say. Allow them to sink in. Don't worry about it. If you don't understand if attention doesn't go anywhere, if it gets lost, all that is fine. It's either going to happen or it ain't going to happen. And there's nothing you can do about it because you don't exist. So don't, don't worry. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to ring the gong like we do in our formal meditation once to let us know we're beginning. And I'll give a few moments. You can just sit there and you can focus on your breath if you want to or if you have a mantra or something just to settle your mind. And then I'm just going to start reading, and I might say a word or two in between, and we'll just go and see what happens. It's like a a big experiment here. Okay, here we go. Now for this first part, open your eyes and let your gaze fall softly somewhere in front of you. And open all your senses, your hearing, your feeling, touching, smell and taste. Just be one big receptor, including your mental sense, so you're going to hear meaning in the words, but don't focus on the words per se. Try to keep all your senses open, just for those of you who are familiar with the term, hanging out in choiceless awareness, and we'll see what happens. That which is before you is it, in all its fullness, utterly complete. There is naught besides. Everything stands for God, and you see only God in all the world. IN THE WHOLE UNIVERSE, IN ALL STATES OF BEING, IN ALL FORMS IS HE, ALL NAMES ARE HIS NAMES, ALL SHAPES HIS SHAPES, ALL QUALITIES HIS QUALITIES, AND ALL MODES OF EXISTENCE ARE TRULY HIS. MY EYES HAVE NEVER GAZED ON OTHER THAN HIS FACE, MY EARS HAVE NEVER HEARD OTHER THAN HIS WORDS. Now close your eyes and turn your attention inward and try to find what Longchenpa called the inner consciousness or the perceiver or the self. And if you don't find a perceiver or a self, What do you find? Where nothing is, there is everything. All efforts are for the sake of this realization. Our mind, accustomed to the image of the things of sense, when it glimpses the light of the supreme being, seems to itself to see nothing. It does not realize that this very darkness is the supreme illumination of our mind. When you look at mind, there's nothing to be seen. In this very not seeing, you see the definitive meaning. When I looked into nothingness, I vanished. And lo, I was the all-living, only God I saw. Awareness itself is liberated by means of awareness, like water dissolving into water. One's own nature simply encounters itself. Be still and know that I am God. There is no reaching the true self. If the true self were to be reached, it would mean that the true self is not here and now, but that it is yet to be obtained. So I say the true self is not reached. You are the true self. You are already that. There is no seeker, no sought, no receiving of information, no inquiry, no definition, and no description. God is everything in everything. Honor belongs to God. Who are those who honor God? Those who have wholly gone out of themselves and who do not seek for what is theirs in anything, whatever it may be, great or little, who are not looking beneath themselves or above themselves or beside themselves or at themselves, who are not desiring possessions or honors or ease, or pleasure, or profit, or inwardness, or holiness, or reward, or the kingdom of heaven, and who have gone out from all this, from everything that is theirs, these people honor God, and they honor properly, and they give him what is his. A Buddha's practice is to practice in the same manner as the entire universe and all beings. If it is not practice with all beings, it is not a Buddha's practice. The fire god is here to look for fire. Anybody want to share any experience they had? Yeah. In, immediately, as we started,
0: just after the bell, someone came to the door and
1: walked in. That, that occurrence was entirely inside me, whatever me might be. There was only... One possible, one obvious me was everything, was encompassing everything. Quickly, though, after that happened, um, the, the usual framework returned, in which, well, that's another person, and the shoes are taken off and outside me. This is a very good example of how spiritual practices, short of enlightenment, can show us very important, profound truths. The boundary between you and another person is a constructed boundary. It doesn't actually exist. So when, in a moment, perhaps just serendipitously, or maybe when you're relaxed because of a meditation, then the boundary isn't being created for that moment. So something happens, and you see it. I mean, you just see. What is obvious? And then the mind kicks in and says, oh, I'll interpret for you what happened. A person walked in the door and they're taking off their shoes and suddenly you've recreated the framework and imposed it back on. It's very interesting because it happens automatically and so fast that we normally are not aware of it. You know, we just don't know what's happening. One of the purposes of spiritual practice, particularly certain meditation practices, is to slow that down. So we can start to become aware of how that works. And it's very important to recognize that the problem isn't that we draw the boundaries. We need to draw the boundaries. That's how we play the game. But we should know what we're doing. We should know that we are drawing the boundaries on a non-dual canvas. And then we're not stuck with the boundaries. Then we're not living in the boundaries. Even the boundaries are arising within us. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So that's a wonderful insight. That's a, that kind of insight is far more important than going to some blissful state of samadhi, which has its place too. You know, that's the carrot that will entice people to continue on a path. But that kind of insight, that kind of perception of what is actually happening is really what a spiritual path is geared to encourage to happen it can't make it happen but to try to devise situations where that can happen that aha kind of thing thank you very nice
0: yes there is another part of the mind that sort of uh, resonates then with uh, either those statements that seem to fit our preconceived boundaries and one say bingo you know (laughs) but and then there was one where you said well you talked about uh it's not this not that and but uh and i said oh that sounds dualistic and i found myself almost resisting letting that one in and i've you know and i found it almost disturbing to sort of like oh how did i let this throw me off where I was, you
1: know yes that's also the job of a teacher to throw you off wherever you are <laughs> whether dualistic or non-dualistic it doesn't matter and you're very right, there's this tremendously strong tendency of the mind anybody's mind, to interpret in terms of what we already know and then there's this judgment going on oh yeah, I agree with that, no, I don't agree with that oh yeah, I agree with that, that fits what I think no, it doesn't, you know And if we do that, we can't ever truly receive anything new. That's a problem, you know, just in general. I mean, it's very good to be able to just suspend that judgment long enough to actually hear what another person's saying. Whether they're saying something philosophical or whether they're just saying something emotional. You know, we always have a problem with that. But from a spiritual point of view, it's not about finding a new way to conceive things and to adjust your frame of reference. It's to throw out the frame of reference for a moment, long enough to see the nature of reality and the nature of the frame. So, for instance, did anybody get any response to the very last thing I read? The fire god is here to look for fire? Yeah. Uh,
0: well, first my mind responded to it and said, well, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but, um...
1: Very good mind. <laughs> very good no that's exactly right go ahead
0: um but then i realized that okay if everything's god and i am god i'm the fire god and the fire's within and i just allowed myself to feel the fire of god and it just kind of spread everywhere
1: now don't take this personally but i'm going to use you to illustrate this story this came from a zen story and I saved it for the last because hopefully it would be something that wouldn't make any sense to people's <laughs> minds. Your mind then turned it into something that made sense, which is what the mind is hired to do. But the context of the story is this. There was a teacher named Fayan. Okay. This was actually Chan Buddhism in China before it got to Japan. And Fayan had a student, and I, these names I'm just going to have to make them up, but Zong Zi, I think it was, Zong Zi. And Zongzi uh, came to the monastery and was studying with Fayan and was there for, I don't know, a year or so and never came to the master to ask for a personal interview or consultations or to get teachings or anything like that. He just showed up for the sessions and, you know, did his chores. So after a while, the master asked him, he said, "Um, Zongzi, he said, "Uh, you know, you've been here a year now and you haven't asked me for any teachings or anything. What's going on? And Zongzi said, well, I have to confess to you, I'm already awake. (laughs) <laughs> and Fayan said oh really how did that happen he said well my previous master and this is one I forgot but let's call him uh, I don't know Mao Tu he said Mao Tu gave me this koan to work on the fire god has come to look for fire and I understood now I've forgotten exactly what he said but I'm going to just borrow your words what'd you say now can you repeat it oh
0: well, let's see
1: everything is fire I'm If fire. everything's God
0: and God is fire then I'm fire and Something like that.
1: Right. Okay. So yeah, he would have said, within, you know. He would have said Buddha nature. So if I'm Buddha nature, everything's Buddha nature. And then, uh, so we're all the same nature. And so Fayan looked at him and said, Oh, I'm afraid you've misunderstood. You're, you're not awake. And Zongzi said, I'm not. And he started to get upset about it. He said, Well, I, I, can you give me something that would wake me up? That would help me? And Fayan said, Sure. He said, Well, please. Yes, the fire god has come to look for fire.
0: <laughs>
1: so it serves exactly that purpose to cut through whatever your mind is thinking, judging right, wrong, all that stuff. Just cut right through. Yes.
0: Well, I kind uh, of just uh, don't know, if this kind of thing and trying to open all my senses. But what you said just afterwards here about the mind interpreting. Um, in order to fully get your senses involved, as you were talking about, should one try not to interpret, like the words you were saying, just try to let them come in, um, rather than interpret them, which I guess is what I think I was kind of doing, whether it was automatic or trying to understand it or something.
1: I, I think the best thing to do is to try that, because it won't work.
0: Try what? <laughs> to not to interpret. Okay. It so won't work.
1: Yeah. Well, this is the point. Try not to interpret, but also watch what your mind, in fact, is doing when it's trying not to interpret. Because isn't it still interpreting that I shouldn't be interpreting? (laughs) See, all this is very important, and I'm not making fun of anybody here, because this is what we want to be able to do. And this is why I said a lot of teachings are remedial teachings. And in fact, these teachings, if we don't wake up, will serve as remedial teachings for us, because they show us what our mind is doing and if our attention is alert we'll see that we'll see how the mind to say okay i shouldn't be interpreting here this is not the zen way to do it i this, and you know there it goes again right and then after a while of struggle you know trying to silence it or trying to do something with it you know it's through that process of struggle that we discover things without the struggle it's not going to happen for 99 percent of the time so yes See, you investigate for yourself. (laughs) Try all the different ways. You know, when Zen students get a Zen koan from their Zen master, that's what they do. They're given the koan and they're given the instruction to go off and meditate on this. And then they have to come back to the master with an answer. And then the master either accepts the answer or sends them on their way back to study again. Well, this is designed just to do that. So the student can see all the contortions the mind goes through trying to grapple with this. Hopefully it gets to the point where it just gives up, stops trying to grapple. But if you want to try to stop it, go ahead and try, see what happens. We are all our own laboratories, and we can investigate these things ourselves. It's our minds, our feelings, our desires, all the things that mystics talk about. We all possess them. That's why we all have the ability to wake up. Yes, in the back there.
0: Oh, I can notice that... Sitting my mind would clear for a little while and then would get busy. Mm-hmm. It would clear for a while and then get busy
1: and throw up images. And, okay. How, how I'm many people of here have tried to do a little meditation have had a similar experience to him?
0: <laughs> <laughs> but when I noticed it was getting very tiring.
1: Ah! And
0: actually, I wanted to go to sleep at the
1: end. Ah, that's where retreats are very valuable. No. That'll really get the mind tired.
0: <laughs>
1: that's a good thing that's a very good thing when the mind gets tired because the truth of the matter is you can't stop the mind you can't do anything about the mind you are the mind that's trying to do it so the mind can not but the mind can get tired and give up and a lot of practices like the Cohen practice I just described is a practice of trying to exhaust the mind there so, yeah so what would happen if he did fall
0: asleep what effect
1: does that have? Well, it would depend on the individual. See, I mean, some people would fall asleep and then they'd wake up and then they'd feel terrible. They'd feel like they're a bad meditator. They'd look around to see if anybody thought they'd fall asleep. Here's, <laughs> here's the mind creating all the suffering, right? Through all this process of judgment about what should be going on or shouldn't be going on and so forth. But there's another little Zen story about Rinzai. Rinzai was the, ended up being the founder of one of the great Zen schools but he was apparently a terrible monk. I mean, he just, you know, couldn't do anything right. He was a crybaby and this and that and mm-hmm. so forth. And there's one story about his master, whose name I don't remember. Let's call him Fayen. Fayen's good. So, and they're all in the Zendo, you know, they line up and they're sitting on their cushions, meditating like this. And there's a young monk, very earnest, sitting on his cushion, you know, staring straight ahead, very minute. And Fayan is sitting up there and he gets up and he walks down. And he looks at this young monk there and He says... What are you doing chasing thoughts? Look at Rinzai down there. He's not chasing thoughts. And of course, everybody looks to the end. Of Rinzai's going... Oh.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: so there's different kinds of reactions. That's the point. There's no one proper reaction. In the context of this practice now, there are right and wrong reactions out there in the world interacting with other people. But in the context of the practice, what would happen if you fall asleep? It would be interesting to find out. How many people have fallen asleep in a meditation? Raise your hand. Okay. So you ask them. You'll get a different story from everybody, I'll bet. Yes, fun. Do um, you think
0: there would be any value in studying with a teacher who whose uh, language you don't understand?
1: Uh, yes. That would be interesting. <laughs> it would be very interesting. Would
0: uh, you come up with your own personal Joel language? No, not. It's nothing. I just uh this topic of sleep, that's pretty much what happened to me. My brain was already very tired when we started this. So uh I wasn't really even capable of doing a lot of thought chasing and uh, which was a a good thing and um was able to just sit with each of the little pith pieces you were doing. And uh, then when it, when it came to the fire, got is here to look for fire, um see, everything just stopped. It just stopped, and it was exactly as if... I mean, I, if there was anything looking there, it was saying, oh, you've gone to sleep. But there was still alertness. So it was very much like just
1: getting plunged into sleep, but my body was still awake. Well, now you're describing something very profound about going to sleep. At the moment of falling asleep, before you've actually fallen into what we call sleep unconsciousness, but when the rest of the world has dropped out of consciousness, that's a moment of pure consciousness. But the trouble is we are not aware of the awareness that is there. And as I read you another Tibetan master, notice I didn't read who they were because it's irrelevant, but Garb Dorje said, awareness encounters awareness. And at that moment of falling asleep, there's a perfect opportunity for awareness to encounter awareness. And like you said, you are aware. You are aware that you are falling asleep. It sounds paradoxical and contradictory, but of course we're aware. We're always aware. We're aware in deep sleep. We're aware in dreams, and then when the dreams pass away, we're still aware. We're just not aware that we're aware, if I can put it that way. That's the problem. And that's what he meant by, awareness encounters its own nature. So it's a wonderful opportunity, see? Uh, Let's just see if somebody else hasn't had a chance to speak yet. Yes?
0: At the beginning of the meditation, I found that my mind was really focused on what you were saying. But as we got into it... It seemed like the awareness stepped away from the mind, and I just became more aware of the awareness. And have to admit that I really didn't even hear some of what you said, because, I mean, I was aware that there was, you were speaking, but that it was just more mind stuff. And it, it just, I guess, wasn't important to do that. Until the very end, for some reason, that last one about the fire god, my mind kicked back in, and I heard that. But most of the time, I was just there in the awareness.
1: Well, again, each person reacts individually and that can either be a sign that the mind is just spacing out or at a certain point we have to actually leave the words behind, the teaching behind. I mean, this was a seven-course meal here, you know what I mean? It's hard to digest it all. So sometimes better just to have one. And if nothing else, if you go away from this morning with an idea of how to read, especially these more profound teachings of the mystics, Uh, don't sit down and read them as though you had to write a PhD on them or something like that, or they're going to take finals or whatever. It's not about absorbing just the outer meanings and being able to spit it back. And it's much more valuable to go slowly. And if you don't have the time, it doesn't matter. Just read and then find something and just ponder that rather than loading up the mind too much. So, you know, that could happen. (laughs) And then even pondering that at a certain point, you even have to leave that behind. It's an instruction, as I said over and over again. And the Buddhists have a wonderful, succinct way of putting it. All these teachings are fingers pointing to the moon. And we need them. We follow the finger, but we want to see the moon and not get stuck on the finger and start worshipping the finger. That's how we turn great teachings into rigid dogmas. Yeah. I'm uh, Sort
0: of related to what you were just saying. I, I arrived here with a little bit of baggage that I wasn't aware of until we got into this. I've been reading Dr. Wolf's book. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And I got to the place in the book where he, uh, what, what's he called it, High Indifference? Yes. You know, it's like his second stage of yes. awakening or whatever you want. He's talking with all these all these transcendental descriptions. And, uh, and wow, I'm just full of all this stuff. So I come in and sit down and we're going to meditate. And Oh, I get a chance to try and put this into practice, and it wasn't happening for me. And I started to get down on myself. I get down the year too. I mean, I really had a lot of self uh, uh, stuff going right. right on in my head, you know, not really being able to
1: get there. But you see, here's the point what you can learn by doing meditation practice and so forth is to begin now to even be detached from that and see that as not me. And you start to see that whole mechanical judging mind that judges out there, that judges in here. You know, that's what Jesus said, you know, judge not, lest ye be judged. That's a very astute, psycho spiritual comment. And you see that mind, and once you can actually see that this isn't me, you, you cease to identify with it, and you see how automatic it is, you see what triggers it, and you see that you can't do anything about it in that seeing, that's what I talked about earlier, you start to become free of it. So it won't shut up, but it won't bother you. You recognize it. Here it is again. And if you have enough spaciousness, you have a sense of compassion for it, because it's a suffering mind, and a sense of humor about it. There's a very good uh, Buddhist teacher, contemporary Buddhist teacher named Joseph Goldstein, and he tells about a little device he has Where whenever he sees that kind of judging mind going on, he calls it Mara. Mara is the Buddhist god of delusion, like a trickster, you know. And he'll say, "Ah, I see you, Mara. I see you, you know. So it's a very useful device because that's how we start to get free. We start to get free. So my basic point is we need to see that. It's not a fault that it happens. You should be grateful for that. Thank you. Because now you're beginning to see. You're beginning to get to know the mechanism of samsara. That's what that means. Nitty gritty in detail. So it's a really good thing. You know, he had a wonderful insight about the, the boundaries dropping away and all that. We all want those sorts of insights. But the insight about the nature of the conditioning is just as important. Just as important. The automatic chagrin. Yes, exactly. Automatic. You know, this man, uh, where is he? Always oh, buried under there. Plato. Know thyself. And this could be a, a slogan for all mystics from all traditions everywhere. Know thyself. And there are two things about know thyself. Ultimately, it's know thyself because as uh, Sufis say, whoso knoweth himself, knoweth his Lord. So that's the secret. If you know your true nature, you know Buddha nature, because they're the same thing, you know. If you know yourself, you know God, because God and I are one, as Meister Eckhart said. But in the meantime, it doesn't mean just jump to that. It means get to know everything you think you are, because that's how you free yourself from it. So we really need to face ourselves. This is not about an escape from self, and it's not about an escape from suffering. We have to go through the suffering and the selfing as... Andrea says, in order to discover who we truly are. And so it takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of seeing things we don't want to see sometimes. But this is part of the path. But that's also what makes it exciting and rich and worth doing. Yes?
0: Um, where I got thrown off guard was not by the poetry, but by the image in there homily of the hurricane and the eye of the hurricane Um, that just stopped me cold just wanted you to know that good
1: thank you well you can see the true nature of the eye of a hurricane when the hurricane stops now notice something you know, we talk in mystical traditions about surrendering the self, giving up the self, the death of the self, and all these terms. Now what happens when a hurricane stops? So in one sense, you can say, well, the eye is, dies, it vanishes, it disappears, it's gone, oh my god. But has anything gone? What is in the eye? is space. And it's the exact same space in which the hurricane is arising, it's no different. Nothing is lost in terms of that space when the hurricane dies.
0: So I'm thinking of putting a picture of the eye of the hurricane right in the middle of my bathroom mirror.
1: <laughs> a good mandala. That's a good modern mandala, techno-mandala <laughs> to use to meditate on. Yes, indeed. All right, Well, if they, uh, one more? Yes, okay.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> um, this was probably a trick of my mind, but I did see for a moment how everything that I uh, think I'm seeing <laughs> that I think I'm seeing is really just sort of there-ness and then plus then there's this analysis that jumps in right away. You know, like mm-hmm. I'm looking at the back of people's backs here. And I just realized, I, mean, I, I sense once again that like there's a blue shirt in front of me. I don't have really a blue shirt. I don't have a I don't have blue, even in the first instance, I just had this appearance before me, and even if I start to analyze it, all I have is my sensory impressions of what's around me. I don't have what's around me. You know, I live in a universe that is really only composed of sense impressions of all kinds, including from my body, and then I put on this analysis and interpretation of everything, and I call that my world. But I really just have all these different objects floating in space and the thoughts come up and they float
1: around too. So it's like living in an ocean That's right. So that's great. So just stay in the ocean. Become at home in the ocean. The problem is not that your mind analyzes and interprets. The problem is that we get trapped in the story. So it's nothing has to change. It's just this business of identification. And, you know, most seekers spend a lot of time trying to get rid of thoughts. I mean, they're just inevitable. They spend years sometimes, just years, until they finally figure out it cannot be done. There are times in meditation, if you do a consistent practice, where thoughts will on their own subside, and that's wonderful, but you can't do anything about them, and you don't have to. They're all impermanent. they all self liberate Let's do another uh, Andreism. You can have thoughts, but don't let thoughts have you. That's a good note to end this on. All right. Then, until we see you again, and have a wonderful rest of the summer. If I don't see you, peace to you all.